This is Thrash It Out, a show where we listen to a heavy metal album and then argue about it. I'm Brian Latendry. And I'm Anson Johnston. And today we are discussing the, dare I say it once again, seminal album Chaos AD by Sepultura, or to give them their full name, Sepultura from Brazil. How many seminal albums have we, is everyone seminal that we've talked about so far? Uh, certainly everyone that I've chosen. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. Yes. <laughs> no, no, that makes sense. That, that's your theme for this season. It's all, <laughs> yeah. everything is a seminal album. It's my theme for the entire show. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Interesting that you chose this album and we can talk a little bit about, you know, why as we get into it. But um, when I think of Sepultura, this is not the album that immediately pops into my head. Yeah, I think that's probably true of of a lot of people because most people either when they think here Sepultura, they think of either the the sort of earlier classic thrashy albums like Beneath the Remains and Arise from that era, or of course they think of Roots because Roots was this you know massive phenomenon, top of the charts, huge selling, popular album that everybody knows. Um, but I this is my favourite Sepultura album. I think this is their best album, uh, which you know sort of. I, I know, as I say, some people obviously prefer the more thrashy stuff, but I think this is even a better album than Roots, um, which, you know, a lot of listeners may shoot me for, but that is my opinion. Well, yeah, and I I agree with you on the Roots thing. I'm I'm definitely in the group that, that thought their earlier albums were, that's just who Sepultura was to me, but I think in listening to this album, I would say maybe it's their most complete album of the ones that I'm familiar with from sepultura um but yeah. we can jump into that as we kind of as we kind of dig a little bit deeper i wouldn't disagree with that yeah i mean and that's why it's my favorite because it feels coherent and you know almost every song is absolutely top quality um but as you say we'll get into that more later uh by the way i should apologize um to listeners if i sound a bit raspy i am currently fighting off the beginnings of a uh, cold that i picked up at a conference at the weekend so uh yes i i'm rather uh dry-throated as you can as you can tell con crud <laughs> yeah indeed <laughs> just think of it as me doing my best max cavalera impression throughout the whole show <laughs> right um yeah so i guess we can start with our feed uh feedback page over on facebook because our last episode we talked about battering ram from saxon which you know i wouldn't i don't know that i would call it a seminal album for Saxon, but definitely a album that fits my theme of respecting your elders and sort of showing that a band who has been around for such a long time can still put out a great album. And what I loved about it was that I felt like it really captured their live energy in album form. And we got some interesting feedback to that. So so Joe said, my intro to Saxon, I was in gym class with an older kid and he, and we connected on being hard rock fans. I love Def Leppard's Let It Go on the radio, so he copied that album onto a tape for me. There was extra space, so he included a Saxon song. When Pyromania came out, he did the same thing. So the only Saxon songs I knew for many years were Princess of the Night and The Band's Blade On. That's pretty wild to only hear, like, yeah, one or two songs from a band. <laughs> yeah, that have it's been kind of crazy. That long, yeah. Um, I should say, actually, that, I mean, as people who listen to the episode know, you definitely achieved the whole respect your elders aim with me because you know as listeners will recall i i quite liked the album a lot more than i expected to uh and to be perfectly honest more than the the little early saxon material that i had heard which really was almost nothing and then i went and listened to some early stuff when you and a couple of other people posted it 
before the episode, you know, posted YouTube links in the Facebook group. And it really wasn't my thing at all. But that album, uh, I, I liked quite a bit and I have listened to it since. It's uh, some really good songs on there. Yeah, I'm a big fan of that album and, and Thunderbolt, which came after that one as well. So uh, Mike had said, I saw Saxon live back in the 80s. There was a warning sign at the venue saying that their lightning rig was so powerful that if you looked at it with contact lenses in, they would melt your eyeballs. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that awesome? <laughs> uh, let's see what else. Uh, Stuart said, FYI, Andy Sneep's originally from Derbyshire. Oh, we had, there was a lot of uh, pseudo corrections in this. Oh, uh, in yeah, this the whole business about that, being from Yorkshire and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So there's some, uh, there's some of that. There's some of uh, some stuff about uh, Nine Inch Nails in there and what album, what song was on and stuff like that. But back to Saxon. Uh, let's see. Greg said, Saxon were the support band at my first ever gig. They supported Nazareth in Caird Hall, Dundee in March, 1980. They played a blinder. It was just before the release of Wheels of Steel and they were throwing empty album covers out into the crowd. He said, I've not heard the podcast yet and I look forward to it being on, on some of their newer stuff. I love their classic new wave of British heavy metal trilogy of Wheels of Steel, Strong Arm of the Law and Denim and Leather. Uh, he, you know, felt they started losing their way a little bit after that, but really was into them back in the day. Uh, Stewart said, I enjoyed the album a lot more than I was expecting, but it has to be said that my expectations weren't enormously high, probably from memories of them doing Strangers in the Night and Wheels of Steel on top of the pops. Uh, he said, I could and did quite happily listen to it, but Saxon probably won't be on a frequent replay for me, but that's more to do with me than Saxon. Which is fair, yeah. Yeah, Top of the Pops, I've mentioned before, that's the, that's the old, it's not running anymore, but it was a weekly music show on the BBC where bands would, uh, before the advent of the music video especially, would basically go into the studio and mime to playback uh, in, yep. front of a, in front of a lot. So the audience was live, the band were there, but it was all playback. <laughs> it was very odd. Yeah, that actually played a, a pretty big part in Twisted Sisters uh, history back in the day as well. Yeah, well, um, it was a huge show over here. It's, it's hard to sort of, you know, in these days of, fragmented viewing in youtube and what have you it, it's sometimes hard to think back and realize that at its height millions and i mean literally you know in somewhere in the teens of millions of people watched that show for 30 minutes every week if you were you know even motorhead were on it a few times uh it was kind of you know you did not it wasn't regarded as selling out because it was just it was the biggest tv venue you could hope for in the uk it was uh, enormous right uh, Art said he enjoyed the album a lot. Scott said, great pod, guys. Also, because I haven't seen anyone else mentioning it, the sound quality of your voices in the music is just awesome. I wonder if that'll hold in this episode, because I've already had some technical <laughs> difficulties. <laughs> You're not feeling well. So don't I hold sound, this I one sound like us. the uh, yeah, the Portuguese laughing guy or whatever. <laughs> yeah. uh, with regard to Saxon, he said, uh, it's just mind-blowing that Biff is still rocking so hard, as are the other guys. Uh, he said, I was really looking forward to you discussing Saxon in general and also this album. I think it marks a return to form for them, just like their latest one. I used to listen to them in the 80s. The Eagle Has Landed was my favorite, one of my favorite live albums for a long time. Uh, let's see. Greg said, I enjoyed the podcast and I have to say I like most of the new material on Battering Ram. I think some of the symphonic metal bands have had an influence on later Saxon material, giving uh, the band sound more depth than the earlier albums had. And I'll certainly be giving it a full listen along with Thunderbolt. I thought that was interesting because I, I think I can see that. I mean, I, I don't want to say that the music 
is deeper now than it was before. But I, I th- because I think a lot of the disservice that was done to Saxon in terms of people not thinking they're, you know, metal or heavy enough or whatever had much more to do with the production of the albums. And then Mm -hmm. that just not coming across on the album, but they do have very much a sort of motorcycle rock bar band feel to a lot of their songs, which I think sometimes gets associated with like a lack of lack of depth. You know what I mean? Yeah, well, and also when they started, I mean, the Norwegian movement, you know, famously, as we've discussed before when we did the Iron Maiden episode, eschewed things like keyboards, yeah. uh, whereas that's clearly not the case now. And that's one of the things that symphonic metal, I think, kind of made acceptable again for metal bands to, it's okay to put keyboards in there, you know, like, no, you're not Genesis or Rick Wakeman or whatever, you know, doing massive long keyboard solos, but it's okay to have them for textures and atmosphere and that sort of thing. Um, and so maybe that's kind of, I think that's not a bad thing either to take influences from modern bands when you're a band that's got as much longevity as Saxon had, you know, again, Motorhead did the same. Yep. They didn't change maybe as much (laughs) as as some bands have throughout the nineties and two thousands. Uh, but they did definitely take influence from modern bands as well. And I think that's a healthy thing for a long live band. Uh, Matt said, the only other Saxon I own is a Greatest Hits album, uh, and maybe because I found their Greatest Hits to be a bit patchy, I never looked more into their albums. Overall, liked this one. It's probably not going to become a go-to album of mine, but it will get played from time to time. Uh, let's see. Uh, Phil said, I had a brief fling with Saxon back in 83-84. Of course, Denim and Leather was the favorite song with my friends and me. Saw them live sometime in 84-85 and a triple bill with Crocus and Accept great show it sounds like a great show Mm. uh he said remember saxon was good but didn't blow me away that was also pretty much the last time i listened to saxon um so he has a history there but they never really sort of clicked with him uh daniel said first listen it's like iron baden and judas priest but boring So my response to that was never trust your first listen. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, true enough, true enough. And he said, okay, I got through my third listen. The third time through definitely sounded better. I think the guitars have a generic tone and the riff writing is somewhat is entirely forgettable, which makes it tough to dig into. Uh, songwriting in general is uninspired. So Daniel clearly not a fan of Saxon's uh, sound. He said, yeah, overall, well, they sound pretty solid, but the songwriting is pretty dull. I see. I mean, I can see the criticism of the sound because it is that modern, especially with Andy Sneap produced records. It is that modern metal sound that is kind of yeah. A lot of you know the guitars are very samey. A lot of the drum sounds are the same. I disagree on the riff writing because several of those riffs I thought were really good and very memorable. I find it interesting though that there's almost a um, I don't want to say like Andy Sneap backlash, but I do have. Uh, there's been a couple comments here, and I I have kind of heard like it's. Not that he's wearing out his welcome, but it seems like people are kind of not as high on his approach as maybe when he first, you know, started yeah. producing these records. And um, I still really, really like anything. He's one of those sort of sight unseen guys for me, where if I hear that he is producing an album, I'm going to buy it just because I really like the sort of sound that he captures and then the guitar tone is one of my favorite things. So for me, that's a plus, but I do see that it's not, it's definitely not something that resonates with everyone. I think that some of it is a certain, there's a certain amount of familiarity breeds contempt. You know, he was, he was lauded when he first sort of broke out as a producer. Uh, 
doing what he does now, you know, because it was a little different. But of course, now it's no longer different. I mean, you know, several Jura album that we're talking about, Andy Wallace. Andy Wallace had a backlash in the 90s as well for exactly the same reason, because suddenly he was really in demand. So did Terry Date, thanks to um, Pantera. You know, I remember a lot of people complaining that, oh God, not another Andy Wallace record. Not an-. And it's just because they were, you know, they did something great that other people hadn't done. Therefore they got popular. They did it again. And you know, it's just the usual cycle. I think, um, you know, I, I don't read too much into it. My favorite comment of all though. And the one that we will end on is Dave Richards, who said mission accomplished, Brian, before this, I had almost no experience with Saxon. In fact, for the longest time, I confused them with the band Samson. that's even worse than my confusing them with magnum (laughs) in parentheses he said i was like hey good to see they survived bruce dickinson joining iron maiden Uh, (laughs) a couple years ago i heard biff byford sing with motorhead on the dio tribute album and was not pleased because motorhead were my favorite band and i was like who is this guy i want to hear lemmy he said after listening to this album though i was pleasantly surprised to me it felt like they combined elements of motorhead priest and maiden in a lot of cool ways. Plus, extra props for Biff being a Marvel Comics fan and writing a song about a sort of obscure Thor element with Destroyer. Anthony and I share similar sensibilities, so I probably I probably won't go back and check out Saxon's past efforts, but I did grab Thunderbolt today, and I'm excited to listen to it. Awesome. Yeah, so of course that makes it all worth it for me, and uh, I, I take that as a, a win overall. Absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned Dave Richards, actually, because... I was going to um, point out also on the Facebook group, it was, as we record, it's uh, a few days since the anniversary of Peter Steele's death. Yep. Uh, 14th of April. And uh, I posted a, a link to a typo negative song on the uh, Facebook group in tribute. And Dave Richards replied with a, a lovely anecdote. So I'm going to read it now. He said, when I worked at a record store in my 20s, we were lucky enough to get Typo to do an in-store appearance. They were all super nice guys, especially Peter Steele. He signed my female co-worker's Playgirl, for people who don't know, Pete Steele had an infamous spread-in uh-huh. Playgirl, uh, and posed for a picture carrying her in his arms, because Pete Steele was a huge man and he could do that sort of thing. Uh, they also put the staff on the list for their show in Detroit that night, where they and Godflesh were opening for Danzig. It was great. They blew the other two bands off the stage that night in my opinion. What a brilliant thing to do for the local record store staff. Yeah, that's freaking awesome. And I feel like it also reminds people of like what it used to be like when you had a local record store and you could <laughs> occasionally have things like that happen. Um, which reminds me that this past weekend was record store day. And um, I went to my local record store music outlet, of course, and it was great to see that there was a good amount of people there coming in to buy the vinyl releases that were sort of limited editions and he also had out like previous years releases from record store day so you could maybe pick up something that you hadn't gotten before and then there was a sale in the store and so it was it's just nice to see people hanging out at the music store and you know for me obviously having one very close to me i never hesitate to appreciate that and make sure that i go and support them and uh yeah so it was really exciting yeah, well, that's, I mean, Record Store Day is wonderful, but obviously it's going back there more than just once a year that totally. keeps those stores open and thriving. So, uh, but yeah, um, I, I was, I think I was away at that conference when Record Store Day happened, but uh, I have been, I, I think maybe a year or two ago, I was in Brighton on Record Store Day and the record, the vinyl store down there was absolutely rammed. I mean, like, you know, there was a line out the door 
first thing in the morning waiting for them to uh, when they first opened it was uh, it was crazy really popular I actually also found I don't know if I mentioned it on the last episode or not but I also found a record store in my city where I live now that I didn't even know existed and has been there for a few years now it's called Spin That Records and uh it's it's just wall to wall it's all vinyl wall to wall vinyl Every genre you could imagine, not as much rock and metal as I would like, but if you pick through stuff, you can find some some good stuff in there. And so I, I now have two music stores around me that I can frequent on a regular basis and spend whatever whatever hard-earned cash I still have left in my pocket. So I'm I'm now buying more vinyl again, even though I had, you know, basically <laughs> gotten away from vinyl and gotten rid of most of my CDs. I'm now I'll buy CDs at Music Outlet uh and then I'm buying vinyl at this place. So yeah, I'm I'm now buying more stuff that I have no room for, but it makes me happy. It sparks oh. joy as right. uh, you know, as people would say. <laughs> as Marie Kondo would say. Yeah. That is, that is great though. I mean, what an embarrassment of riches. You know, time, it, time was my little town where I grew up had uh let me think two dedicated record stores and two other general stores that had record departments. Um, I believe it now has precisely zero places yeah. you can buy records. What a shame. Yep. Uh, anyway, anyway, uh, but this uh, album that we're talking about this time, Chaos AD, I did buy physically. Oh, before we do that, I should say we have a new patron uh, since the last episode, and that's Kyle Curia. So thank you very much, Kyle. Welcome. Um, uh, long-time listener, I believe. I'm pretty sure I know Kyle from a Twitter, I think. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah, thank you, Kyle. Uh, and, of course, remember to everyone, uh, to remind everyone, if you want to join in the Facebook fun, go to facebook.com slash groups slash thrash it out. Uh, and if you want to support us and become a patron, you can go to do that at patreon.com slash thrash it out. Uh, so, yeah, let's move on to Chaos AD then and Sepultura from Brazil. Um which I, I say that because that's, I think it was, was it Reading that they uh, came on stage? I think it might have been this album actually as well, before Roots, and just sort of blew everybody off on the <laughs> yeah. stage. That's a very that. sort of Motorhead opening, right? It totally, yeah. It was literally Max just strode to the microphone and went, We are Sepultura from Brazil. <laughs> it was fucking great. But memorable. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I wasn't even there. I, like, friends were there and told me about it, and I, I have seen video of it since. Um, yeah, they were. What I did see them actually on the tour for this album was, I think I mentioned this before, was um, they did a tour with Paradise Lost uh, throughout Europe. And I saw them at Rock City in Nottingham here in England. And that was probably the best gig I've ever been to. Uh, because wow. that, I mean, like I say, I really like this album. I really, really do. I was well into it when it came out. And obviously Paradise Lost, as I've mentioned before, you know, my favorite band. And they were riding high on Icon the album that we covered when we did our yeah. nice last episode. Uh, so it was before they had their biggest commercial, which is why they were supporting uh, Sepultura. Uh, I think, I'm not sure if it was a co-headliner they were supporting, but they were on first that night anyway. Um, and yeah, so it was just before they broke big, but I love Icon, the album. And as I say, I love this album. And it was just, the atmosphere was great. Both bands were fantastic. Uh, it was just amazing. And it also gave us a laugh that I think I've mentioned on this show before, but I'll say it again, um, that I will never forget because we were, this was back in the day when I used to get to gigs well early. Like I would get to a gig three hours early to make sure that I was, you know, near the front of the queue. Uh, and sometimes that backfired. Like when we went to see Halloween, 
down in London and we got there about three hours early and there was nobody else there. <laughs> Huh. <laughs> we went next door and got pizza instead uh, <laughs> because yeah i was like thinking oh gotta get there gotta get there, be near the front and there was just i'm the same way around. dude i want to get there early um, i want to get my spot i want right. to if i'm going to get merch i usually buy it before the show because i don't want oh, them totally. to be out at the end of the show when i'm looking yep. for it exactly yep. although the uh although I did buy one of my favorite shirts, a long sleeve Paradise Lost shirt at this particular gig, and it then got trashed during the show. <laughs> it was it was never the same again since I'd only just bought it. Um, <laughs> but we were not at the front, but we were maybe, you know, like four people in front of us or something. We, you know, we were well near the front of the line. And we'd been there a while and we were all chatting away and everybody's having a good time. It was a lovely day. Uh, and then suddenly there was a commotion from the back of the line and I thought people were trying to push in or something. We weren't sure. Uh, and then these guys wearing lanyards. So it was like, okay, well they clearly crew or something came up and, uh, and walked through the front, walked past us and through the front door and they were very polite about it. Excuse me, excuse me. Okay. Yeah. And it was only after the door had closed beyond that we went, wait a minute, was that Sepulchre? <laughs> they just wow. walked, they'd been walking in the town, I guess, went to see Nottingham, uh, and just walked past us all, but they were so small. I think that was what caught us all by surprise. Cause I mean, you, you've met me. I'm not a big guy, but I towered over <laughs> like Max and Andreas Kisser. <laughs> wow. Um, and so, yeah, after they walked in, we were like, wait a second, those guys look familiar. <laughs> when I describe uh, you to people, I describe you as six, seven feet tall. So as a giant, of course. Yes, yeah, yes. absolutely. What yeah. else do I pay you for? Uh, right. <laughs> Um, but yeah, this um, like I say, came out in October '93. I mean, there's no, I don't think there's any need to go through the sort of history of Sepultura themselves for people. Is there really anybody listening who doesn't know, you know, the the story of Sepultura formed in Brazil in the mid '80s by the Cavaleira brothers? Sepultura is from a Motorhead lyric; it means burial in Portuguese. Um, they were an underground thrash band. They absolutely hero worshipped the sort of Bay Area thrash. For uh, sure. Big bands. Uh, and, you know, were a sort of straight ahead thrash band for their first EP and then um, Beneath the Remains and then Arise. Uh, and they were good. Don't get me wrong. They were good. But I was never into them as such. You know, I'd heard a couple of tracks, obviously, things like Dead Embryonic Cells and um, what's the one from Beneath the Remains? Inner Self, I think it is. Um, well, you know, I'd heard a few tracks and they were they were fine. I liked them, but I was never really into them. Uh, and then this album hit, but you do, you, you like those earlier albums. So were you into them at the time or did you get into them? Well, it was a rise for me. A a rise for me was the album. And you mentioned, you know, Bay area thrash. It was through that, that I got into Sepultura and I have never, I never got a chance to see Sepultura live back in the day. Um, but when the, I'm trying to think, was it 91? When Arise came out, I think it was. I think ninety one right, yeah. was Arise. Yeah, because so they was did a like a massive like two year tour off the back of it. Yeah, yeah, and I was a junior in high school at that in that particular time. So it was right in the wheelhouse of all my friends and I. You know, your your music loving metalhead friends at that time in high school sharing music with one another, and it was one of my friends who we were both really into Slayer, and it. And he was the one that introduced me to Sepultura with Arise. And so I'm, you know, I'd seen them on Headbangers Ball and stuff like that, but it was, it was that album where he was like, dude, you have to like listen to these guys. And so that was the Sepultura album for me because what happened was I had graduated uh, high school by the time that 
this album came out, Chaos AD, and I was in college with people who had completely different musical tastes, and so I wasn't as like uh, immersed in all the albums that were coming out and everything that was going on at the time in the scene. And so Sepultura, for me, was kind of a came-and-went sort of band in that I got into them kind of, you know, as a as a spinoff of the thrash that I was listening to. Arise was that one Sepultura album that I had, you know, that, uh, and we went back, of course, and, you know, listened to Beneath the Remains and stuff, but it was Arise for me that was Sepultura. So as soon as anyone ever mentioned Sepultura, I think of that very Lovecraftian album cover uh, of theirs whenever I think of them. And so this was an album that I didn't have a lot of familiarity with. I mean, I'm sure I've heard it a few times, right, but in, right. in sitting down and really diving into it, like, and and Roots for me is not uh, a preferred album of theirs for me because it doesn't sound like the Sepultura that I remember, you know, from back in the day. This is kind of that transition album of getting, stepping away from thrash, not completely, but their sound really diversifying you know, and then continuing uh, to diversify. Whereas the the other stuff was, I thought, more straight ahead. Arise to me is a, a much more straight ahead, like thrash album. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah, this is totally a transition album, and I can completely see why a Slayer fan would be into Arise. Uh, again, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that Slayer were an influence on them, and that comes across. And and yeah, you know, it's I can see that completely. But you're right, this was a transition album, and then Roots was even further away from. Uh, their thrashers. I mean, it's you know, it would be hard, really, to even argue that Roots is a thrash metal album um, because they'd gone so far away from it by that point. I would think, in terms of your exposure to Chaos AD, you could not move on MTV for uh, the music video to Territory, the second track on this album. I mean, Refuse Resist got quite a bit of play when it first yeah. came out, but te- Territory is the one that really. Like if you go back and watch that on YouTube now, you'll be like, "Oh yeah, I remember this. It was right. everywhere." Um, so, and if you do a Google search for this album, that's like the first thing that comes up. Yeah, yeah, it will be. As I say, it was a huge. Uh, I mean, I don't know whether it was a hit single per se, but on MTV and certainly on places like Headbangers Ball and you know rock, rock radio, uh, both Refuse, Resist, and Territory got enormous airtime um, because they were when they recorded this. Thanks to all that touring they did off the back of Arise, Arise was a, a you know a very successful album for yep. let's face it a pretty obscure at the time metal band um, you know a metal band from Brazil that most people had never heard of didn't know what the name meant uh, it you know sounded very very heavy and thrashy and yet they were I think I read that they were the most successful act on Roadrunner by the time they finished the Arise tour, which is huh. kind of amazing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's like, stick that in your pipe and smoke it, you know? Um, and so Roadrunner gave them a big budget for this album. I mean, I say big budget. Compared to the Black album, it was fuck all. But for Sepultura, <laughs> it was an enormous budget. Right. Um, I think it was $40,000 or something, which, yeah, you know, by Metallica standards, that's like... What's that? You know, that's Lars's tennis shoes for a week. I mean, that's nothing. But for Sepultura, that apparently was an enormous amount of money. Uh, And so they came to uh, the UK. They recorded this in Wales Um, after they'd chosen uh, Andy Wallace as producer. They said that they wanted to go somewhere isolated where they could just kind of, you know, not be disturbed. And 
I presume Andy Wallace must have worked there before because he apparently recommended Rockfield Studios in Wales. And Andy Wallace is American, so it's not like he was from that part of right. the uh, world or anything. Uh, and believe me, pretty much anywhere in Wales, you're going to be isolated. It's that kind of country. And I say that with love. I, I, you know, I grew up near Wales. I love Wales. I've been there many times. Um, but it is the sort of place where you don't have to go far to be isolated. Um, and then, of course, famously recorded one of the tracks on this album in the ruins of a nearby castle as well. Um, yes. Because Wales, again, is full of castles. <laughs> yeah, and that, I can't wait to talk about that song when we get to that. And, and you meant the Andy Wallace thing. I mean, that from what I have read about this album, like he is the X factor that really helped them make that transition to a more diverse sound. Like this, that was something that they wanted to do. And it was really him that kind of helped set that path. Mm-hmm. Um, an article I was reading was basically saying, you know, they were determined to make an album that would set them on a new musical path, but it was producer Andy Wallace who helped them get there. And so, um, there's, I can a- believe that I I've read, uh, I read a quote from, uh, Igor saying that, uh, they'd wanted to do things like incorporate Brazilian drumming drum rhythms and stuff into their music for ages, but had never quite figured out how to do it. And it took a lot of work to figure out how to do it and have it still be metal and not turn into a samba. Uh, and so, yes, I could well believe that Andy Wallace was, you know, the guy who helped them reach that point. Well, and it's exactly what you just said. The, what I, the thing that I was reading was about uh, helping them restructure the songs to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish and include the elements that they wanted to include. And so that's where um, I think that's where that kind of all came together, you know, around this album. So uh and also, I think that he was the one who convinced them to record live at the castle. Oh, cool. I, I think that's which we can, you know, talk about when we get there. But yeah, but this was definitely like if you're coming off of a rise and you listen to this album, it's not like a completely different band, but it's definitely a departure. It's a well, uh, I, I prefer to think of it as a progression. Yeah, evolution. <laughs> sure. Evolu- yeah. It's definitely an evolution of their sound, which is interesting in that. You know, we talk a lot about, like, at what album a band sort of finds their sound. You know, when do they get to the point where they uh, have refined things and experimented and, you know, shed some of their influences to to really be confident in their own sound. And, like, depending on when you fall in love with a particular band, you might fall in love with them in that sort of pre, that early stage, you know, kind of like with arise where you're like, Oh no, that's the sound of that band that I like, but that's not ultimately who they're going to go on to be. And so you end up sort of loving this sort of encased in Amber version of the band that isn't what they ultimately go on to be, you know? That's true. But I think in the case of Sepultura, because of everything that happened around them after this album, this period and roots are also kind of encased in Amber as well. Because if you listen to them now with Derek Green, they don't sound like that at all. Um, and they're still not a bad band now, but they haven't made anything on this kind of level. And to be fair, I don't think Max has either. You know, Soulfly is fine, Nailbomb is fine, but neither of those projects is anywhere near the kind of coherence and power that this era of Sepultura had. So, I mean, you could argue that it wasn't so much that they found Sepultura's founders, they found Max's sound, because Soulfly really was an attempt to continue this sound uh, and what they developed on roots through into 
you know, more modern metal, um, you know, with varying degrees of success. Um, but it's a really, yeah, it's a really odd thing that they have these kind of, they were a thrash band, then they were this band, however you want to describe this, whether right. you call it groove metal or new metal or whatever, uh, and then became a sort of, I don't know, just, it, it's, it's hard to classify them in the modern era, just a metal band, you know, who've got elements of thrash and groove and new metal and stuff and just kind of uh, combined it all together. And like I say, not bad, but nowhere near as powerful and coherent as this album or or even Roots, which, as I say, I don't think is as good as this. Well, and for me, like just to go back to sort of how I got into Sepultura to begin with, it was it was all about Igor. It wasn't, it, it wasn't, right. it, it was, you know, my general thought on Sepultura was you come for the percussion, you stay for the riffs sort of thing. You know, that was kind of my <laughs> approach to Sepultura. And when my Slayer loving friend introduced me to, you know, Arise and said, you got to listen to this album. It was, he, what he was basically saying is, I know you love Dave Lombardo. You need to listen to this album and really listen to the drums on this album because they're insane. And so that's where that was my sort of it was through the drums of Slayer that the drums of Sepultura that was my gateway there yeah. um, in, into getting into uh, Sepultura. So for me, it and wasn't are, about Max; it was about Igor. And the drumming is on this on this album and Roots. Well, and and Arise, but you know, the album on this uh, sorry, the drumming on this album is still kind of awesome and, you know, crazy stuff without being a rise, you know, without being that traditional double time, you know, thrash drumming that you got with things like Beneath the Remains, Remains and Arise, which were much more traditional uh, kind of thrash albums. I think that was one of the things, I mean, it's telling, I think, that you'd got, before this album came out, you had also got bands like, uh, Anthrax did sound of white noise, uh, and so sort of open chord, you know, non chugging, but still heavy stuff was starting to, other bands were starting to do that. You know, that yep. was a thing, but nobody was doing what Igor does with the drums on this album until this album came out. And then everybody was yep. doing what Igor does with the drums on this album. So yeah, I mean, in terms of influence, I mean, you can argue Max had a big influence in terms of his vocals because he really mainstreamed those kind of harsh, you know, almost deathy kind of vocals, I think. Yeah. Um, and also in there and the guitar playing was an influence. Sure. But it was Igor's drums and those Brazilian rhythms and his incredible Tom and percussion work that really you couldn't move in metal for it, you know, for the next year or two, in the same way that everybody was trying to imitate Pantera after Vulgar Display of Power, everybody was trying to imitate Sepultura after Chaos AD. Well, and revisiting these guys really made me think, and here's your Metallica mentioned for the episode, is that, you know, when when you listen to the the sound of Igor's drums on this album, like, I almost feel like, man, if the whole St. Anger debacle, if they could have looked at this album and say, well, here's what a, a, a metallic and snappy, you know, sound can be like without overpowering the song and without, um, you know, being a distraction, but living within, you know, the rest of the song, like this is that sound, you know? Yeah. And, and without, I just feel like it's such a good, a textbook example of like, you can do that. You can experiment with, with uh, not only, you know, percussive rhythms, but the actual, like, 
tone sound of the drums and still not take away from the rest of the song. And and that's where I feel like the drums live on this album. Yeah, th- drums that don't sound. I mean, you know, when they get into the straight riffs, the drum sound is fairly traditional. Yeah. But outside of that, all of the percussion and a lot of the intros and stuff, yeah, the drums don't sound like traditional metal drums. But neither do they sound like Lars's, you know, brand new $10,000 Tom that sounds like he's banging an oil drum all the time. Um, it's, uh, yeah, it, it just works really well. But it was, at the time, incredibly different sure. for a metal album uh and not just the sound of it but just the the style of drumming that kind of like i say those brazilian rhythms um I, everybody calls it it became called i should say tribal drumming which is a really patronizing yeah way it's of, pretty reductive you know monica um but i i just for years that was what everybody called it so i apologize in advance if i say that while we're talking about the tracks because yeah, it's just kind of stuck in my head, has been for decades. Um, but it was, yeah, just playing the drums like that, regardless of what they sounded like, in metal was, I mean, I don't know whether it had ever been done before, but it certainly wasn't common, and it certainly hadn't been on a track that got the sort of rotation on MTV and rock radio, like I said, that some of the songs off this album did. And it had an enormous influence. Um, I don't recall what this album scored in Kerrang! at the time, but I know they gave it a pretty rave review, um, and rightly so. And me and my friends had been anticipating it. I think one of the singles, maybe Refuse Resist, came out before the album launched. And so I think that might have been the first thing we saw and went, oh, oh, wow, that's like nothing we've heard before. Okay, we've got to get this album. And so we all did. I mean, like <laughs> it's yeah, pretty much everybody I know uh, that I grew up with who listened to metal has a copy of this album. Most of them also have a copy of Roots, but everybody has a copy of this particular album because it was just so new at the time. Roots was, again, an evolution of this sound, but you were kind of expecting that because you'd had Chaos AD. When Chaos AD came out, nobody was expecting a metal record that sounded like this. It was ranked uh, number 29 on Rolling Stone's 100 Greatest Metal Albums of All Time which is a list I think they updated in like 2017 or something like that. So take that for what you will, but certainly thought of very highly. Yeah, yeah, no, I'd I'd say that's fair. Um, It's certainly one of my favorites, as you can probably tell from me talking about it, but but it is generally regarded, yeah, as, you know, absolute classic album. The only argument that I sometimes have with people is people who put roots above it. And I, I, as I say, I wouldn't, but, you know, each to their own. Um, All right, so shall we go... Track by track, then shall Let's we start with the with the breakdown? All right, so try the well, the album opens, haha, with the heartbeat of Max Cavalera's then unborn son. Yes, uh, which in utero of Gloria, his wife, and the band's manager, which is one of the things that led to Max leaving or being thrown out of, depending on who you believe, Sepultura. But that aside, what a crazy way to start an album with a baby's, a real baby's heartbeat. Not simulated, not from a sound library. No, no, no. This is my son's heartbeat. (laughs) And I might be mistaken about this, but I think that that was an Andy Wallace idea. Oh, fantastic. Anyway, I've just, I haven't even introduced it. So it's called Refuse Resist. What is 
Which the title of uh, was conceived during a ride on the New York City subway. Oh, I didn't know that. So uh, one day when he was in New York, Max was intrigued by the eccentric characters on the train. This is from a article on Revolver, I believe. Uh, let's see. So, yeah, intrigued by the eccentric characters on the train. One in particular caught his eye, an African-American man wearing a black jacket decorated with words from a political speech. He liked the punk rock vibe of the outfit and used the last three words as inspiration for the song. It said, refuse and resist. And he said, so I used that for the song, and I wrote very simple lyrics. Uh, you know, chaos AD, tanks on the street, confronting police, bleeding the plebes. He said they're discharge-oriented lyrics. He's talking about the band Discharge. Yeah, yeah. I, I listened to a lot of Discharge at the time, and they're as simple as it gets. The songs are like two lines, and they're really powerful, and they're killer. Even today, refuse, resist feels like riot music to me. And so... I think you could say that about a lot of the lyrics on this particular album. Yeah, I can see the discharge uh, influence to an extent, actually, for the for the kids out there who have never heard of them, because uh, they were fairly obscure. Discharge was a um, UK punk band formed in the late seventies. Um, uh, their first album came out nineteen eighty two. Uh, yeah, I'm just checking that now. Called. Um, hear nothing, see nothing, say nothing. And it is brutal. It is absolutely brutal. The entire album is less than 30 minutes long. Um, kind of punk metal, one of the first punk metal crossovers. Uh, they were, there's an, a constant argument between them and Motorhead over who invented the D beat. That famous, <laughs> that famous dubba 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 drum beat that Motorhead used because Discharge used it as well. And literally, they're like they've argued over the years over who invented it. Um, but yeah, if you've never heard Discharge, do yourself a favor and go and listen to them because they, for like the late seventies and early eighties, they are fucking heavy, man. Well, and I feel like that's not just on this song, but that seems to be a lyrical approach that Max took quite frequently. Is sort of minimalistic. Yeah, you know lyrics to the songs or you know very short phrases things like that yeah well and it works with his vocal style obviously oh for sure because his vocal style in and of itself is very percussive incredibly yeah and that's another i mean maybe you could argue that's why they sometimes get blamed for uh new metal or you know amongst other bands they get blamed for it but yeah max's vocals and we've talked about this a little with other bands as well you know it's important to emphasize that that style of vocal delivery wasn't that i won't say it wasn't that common but it wasn't that common in popular metal that got to the top of the charts you know it was a very underground style uh that you just didn't hear on the radio or on mtv very much at all and sepultura was so successful that you you kind of couldn't avoid it and combined with um Phil Anselmo's style, you know, that kind of real deathy style that he adopted on later Pantera stuff as well. It's one of the things that really thrust the growl, death growl and what have you style of vocal into the metal mainstream. 
Um, well, and I'm, he, I'm not sure whether Max gets enough credit for that, which is why I wanted to emphasize it. And even at the time, when you think about like, you know, Mustaine's sort of snarly, venomous delivery, or you think of Tom Araya, who is a lot of the lyrics, he was singing so fast, it just came across as like almost like barked sort of uh, sure, gibberish. Yeah. But at the same time, like this was this was a level deeper than that. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like well, when they came on. And you can hear what he's saying as well. Absolutely. Even with, even with his accent, which is quite heavy, you can still nevertheless understand what he's saying. But it was it, it lent it just lent another element to their heaviness when you've heard them for the first time. Yeah. And you were like, yeah. oh, okay, yeah, these guys aren't messing around. Yeah, well, and yeah, I mean that's the thing. This you know, this is a classic intro, obviously the heartbeat in my view, but then you've got the that massive, really, you know, sort of Brazilian style percussion with some really heavy chugging guitars and then that pounding double kick that Igor comes in with, with the main riff. Um, it's, you can tell that they basically found groove between this and Arise. That was um, my first note on this song is much groovier than Arise already. Like on exactly, the first song, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you could sort of take the last track on Arise and the first track on this album and go, this one's thrash, this is groove. Notice yep. the difference. <laughs> yeah, they stepped into a new a new area, for sure. Yeah. Um, one amusing thing with the lyrics on this, when he sings Total Alarm. Now, I have, like I say, I have this album. I have a CD digipack complete with, you know, lovely booklet and photos and lyrics and all that. But I, I don't read lyric sheets that much, to be perfectly honest with you. And for the longest time, I thought he was singing Dawn of Allah. <laughs> I just thought he was like being sympathetic to the Muslims, you know? <laughs> but no, apparently not. It's total alarm. There you go. Um, but yeah, brilliant track, fantastic opener. We've talked many times before about the, about how you get, often get openers that are statements of intent. And this is a real statement of intent. It is really, really heavy. Max is shouting his lungs out. It's groovy. Uh, it's got, you know, that sudden fast section in the middle with the guitar solo, as well as all the Brazilian rhythms and the groove stuff. It, it encompasses pretty much the whole album. And it also has a great ending as well. And it doesn't outstay its welcome. It's what, three minutes long, maybe a little more, you know, yeah, in, and out and bang. I feel like the solo feels very sort of early Metallica. You know, yeah, uh, I can see the feel that, yeah. to it, but then like the shift right back into the main rift. It's so abrupt and uh, just like a slap in the face. You know, when they when they get right back into the main rift riff after the solo. Um, and you talked about a statement song. I mean, just in lyrically too. Silence means death. Stand on your feet. Interfere your worst enemy. Um, yeah. The 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 theme through this entire album is very clear and he doesn't mince words when it comes to his lyrics. No. And uh, one of the other things I read was pointing out that uh, a lot of this album, I mean, it is a very political album, no question about that, but a lot of it is specifically about massacres as well. Yes. This, this track isn't, but that combined with the sort of the overall message of stand up authority and don't let the bastards push you around is it makes for a really powerful political statement across the whole album. I think. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a great opening track. Love it. An absolute classic. Um, and, and Andreas I, just, just to go back to the lyric thing was saying, uh, even with a rise, we were still writing lyrics that were very heavy metal, very based in fantasy, yeah. you know, the post-apocalypse stuff he said, but with chaos ID, we began to get more social and political. Yeah. And it, it shows and it better for it. Absolutely. 
Um, I think they opened with this when I saw them play with Paradise Lost. And you can imagine the entire crowd just went fucking bonkers. <laughs> well, because when the first riff kicks in, I mean, I exactly. can just imagine the entire crowd like jumping up and down and going crazy. Yeah, yeah. And I was right at the front at that gig. Uh, I was right at the barriers, right in front of Max. And it just went absolutely fucking nuts. It was great. <laughs> yeah, it definitely explodes. Moving on then to track two, Territory. This one feels like, I feel like the first three songs all have a different feel to them. Like this one feels very industrial to me. Um, The solo is just, has this really kind of weird feeling. The riff itself is brutal. Um, And this was one that was written by Andreas versus the first one, which was written by Max. Um, But yeah, 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 it feels different to me. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, again, a similar sort of theme, lyrically. Uh, Musically, it takes a slightly different direction, but clearly going down the same road. You know, it's a different lane of the same road, because it is groovy again. Uh, That fantastic rhythmical fast riff that it starts with, and then a really sort of heavy, slow, sludgy riff, and then goes fairly trad thrash. You know, most of the... Uh, verse is fairly sort of the riff anyway is a fairly traditional thrash thing but crucially with Igor playing half time on the drums which is yes. not what you would expect on him again well you know it sounds so simple now but in 1993 that wasn't very common to do that in the main verse you'd expect that in the middle eight but not yes. for the main song and it gives it a real power yep totally agree and i feel because of that like it it, even though it has thrash elements i don't feel like we've gotten to our first thrash song on this album yet no i would agree i would agree but that riff that whole you know that is a very for sure traditional thrash riff it's just the way that it's arranged and played or rather the way that the rest of the band is playing along with it elevates it to its own thing um and it is really the drums, I think, that elevate this song. They really sort of break it out into groove, and it's one of Igor's best performances. Yep. Um, I also I love the fake out at the end where it fades, and you think, oh, that's the end of the song. But no! <laughs> yeah. No, there's like 30 seconds of just pure chugging to get to the climax. <laughs> it's heavy, again, heavy. This is the, the production, in retrospect, the production of this album lets it down a little bit because... Compared to what we have now, you know, even compared to the last album we did, to that Saxon album, it doesn't actually sound just purely sonically all that heavy. 
the guitars. No, are, and like you know, maybe a from bit a too bass standpoint, like and, the bass is thin. You know, yeah, yeah, you can't hear the bass all that much other than when everybody else stops playing. Um, it, but, but when you can hear it, it, it does. It makes you pine for like a f- fuller, richer production because you know, like, oh man, if I if this was if this had some more depth to it, like this would be just sonically brutal. It really and, would. And the fact that you can feel that on these songs, despite the production, you know, of the time, is a testament to the music. Exactly. Exactly. And again, at the time. You know, because we didn't have those sorts of production techniques then. So at the time in 1993, this did sound heavy. For hell. sure. I, yep, I, I always, one thing I've always associated with is having to turn it up loud. It's, it's the sort of album that you have to play it loud to get that heaviness across because of the production. But that was true even in the early 90s. Um, yep. But yeah, just the songwriting itself is heavy enough to, as you say, to come across and really uh, just elevates the whole sound i think yep moving on then again to track three slave new world this is the first thrash song on the album which me. is funny because the lyrics were uh, co-written with evan seinfeld from biohazard who aren't really a thrash band at all <laughs> no and i feel like it's a, it's it kind of not waffles between but kind of ebbs and flows from slayer to pantera in this particular song but it, it, it with even a little bit of anthrax in the opening you know in terms of the the opening of the song but uh it feels like tempo wise and everything else like the first the real thrashy song on the album Do you know i hadn't thought about uh an anthrax influence on that intro but you're right actually yeah i wouldn't have sort of you know wouldn't have been surprised to hear something like that on an anthrax track it's uh yeah i, I mean it's a great thrashy riff after that intro um really good dare i say catchy <laughs> song um also, one of the things that struck me about listening to it, and I've, you know, I've listened to this track many, many times over the years, but listening to it now and sort of, you know, really thinking about it in preparation for this show, it occurred to me you can kind of see the precursor of Joey Jordison's style of drumming and that kind of Slipknot really heavy percussive style uh, in the drumming here. I think because almost every line has a fill. There's like there's almost no time when he isn't doing something crazy on the drums, um, which is what Joe Jordison obviously did so well on Slipknot, where he's just half the time you can't even make sense of the drum pattern because he's just filling in yep. everything. It's like he's his own percussionist, Igor. I mean, on this album, um, 
And yeah, I hadn't really thought about it before, but maybe that's kind of, you know, I wonder how much of an influence Igor in particular was on Joey Jordison. Yeah, I'm sure if he was, I'm sure it's been spoken of or written of somewhere. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure I could look it up. It's just it, it, say it only just occurred to me like yesterday. <laughs> and again, um, lyrics very minimal. You know, face the enemy, stare inside you, control your thoughts, destroy, destroy them all. It's anti censorship. Yeah. Um, you know, you censor what we breathe. Prejudice with no belief. Um, very. I mean, so far of the first three songs, this has the fewest lyrics of any of them. Yeah, I mean, the others aren't exactly overburdened. I mean, lyrics, yeah, they're, but, they're yeah. not War and Peace, for crying out loud. <laughs> any, as, you know, none of them, on the, I'm looking through, and propaganda is probably the most narrative, you know, yeah, dra- yeah, uh, maybe probably, Nomad, yeah. too. But for the most part, like, yeah, it's, uh, there's a lot of songs that use this sort of very short, you know, back and forth, as he described in, like, Discharge, you know, style lyrics. But then there are yeah. some where they, they expand it a little bit and they're telling more of a story. And so it, it kind of, it ends up by the end of the album giving a nice balance between those two styles. Um, but out of the gate, it's very, um, they, they're sort of building to more narrative by keeping it, you know, simple. Yeah, I'd agree. I'd agree. Um, the, should point, I feel I should point out the solo on this one has uh, some very good wah usage <laughs> by andreas I, I feel uh he's sort of channeling his inner um i've forgotten his name metallica fella oh kirk 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 yeah. good lord there you go that's the cold medicine kicking in <laughs> well yeah, yeah cha- and the thing is about andreas like it his style for me is hard to pin down like just what it, it feels like a a lot of different influences mm. that come out to play on different solos like with a lot of guitar players i feel like if when i listen to them or i listen to a song that features them like i instantly know who whose solo that is you know it's very recognizable and i don't and again i don't have nearly as much experience with sepultura as i do with a lot of those other you know bay area bands and things like that but i just i feel like sometimes he sounds very hanneman sometimes he sounds very hammett you know uh but i don't like i don't feel like one distinctive style from him i feel like i'm a hodgepodge of different styles no i'd agree with that and especially on this album it, in later uh, you know, life that may be different, but certainly on this and on roots to a lesser extent, I think that's absolutely true. Um, and I don't know whether that's just because that is his style or because right. he's trying to sort of figure out his own, uh, way around it. But I would agree with you. Yeah. And I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but it, it is true that some of these solos sound a bit like Hammett and some of them sound like they're straight out of a Slayer song. And um, I would say like, like a thing that, that I, feel about some of especially some of Hammett's kind of earlier solos is sometimes they feel a little throwaway like that like there wasn't a strategy going into them and that's kind of here in Sepultura I feel that way about some of uh the solos on this album and when you have a very deliberate vocal approach and when you have a very uh deliberate percussive approach when you have a solo that feels like it's kind of all over the place and uh, there's no real plan here to me it, it in some places it almost feels like a weak spot on the album because it just doesn't feel as thought through as some of the other elements which feel very uh sort of well conceived i think no I, for the whole album i would agree i think there are one or two tracks such as territory actually which has a very 
you know, a, a solo that sounds like it was written and composed. Uh, Andy's also very well played and very memorable. But yeah, for a lot of the other songs, you're right. I wouldn't necessarily, if you ask me to sort of, you know, sing the solo from Amen, right. I'd be like, uh, is there one? I, yes, you know, exactly. I'm kind of. <laughs> yep, that's exactly what I'm talking about. Um, so let's move on to that one then. Let's go on to track four, Amen. I mean, first of all, that sexy bass line that opens up, right? What a great, <laughs> what a great build. And that, again, I think this was the first song where I was like, man, if this had like a more modern production, like this would just sing right now. Um, but you feel it, you know, it's, it's great. I'm not, not to take anything away from it. It's, uh, it, I, I love the opening. I love the build. And then I love when the riff kicks in. Um, the other element of this song that really jumps out at me is the choir in the background. I mean, you sort of have two... Uh, almost like hymnal elements going at the same time in one part of the song, but one is sort of that traditional, almost like church choir in the background. Yeah, you've got, yeah, the worship singing goes over the like really repetitive guitar riff uh, yes. and more drum fills again. Um, the The main part of the song is those sort of spoken, echoing vocals over very atmospheric, jangling guitars that leads into a more traditional riff big fat sludgy intro again as you say this is one that if they'd recorded it with more modern techniques might actually be more of a centerpiece for the album um the slightly thin production does let it down a little bit uh because it's not really until the bit where he roars god over the guitar the rising guitars that this song really hits and that's a couple of minutes in which is a bit of a shame um or maybe more than a couple actually actually i'm not sure if he's roaring god or burn i've never quite worked that out but uh either way it's a really powerful moment of the song uh and this has i did again listening to it you know many many times but really sort of analyzing it over the last uh week or two in prep for this show i realized that there's a breakdown in here like a proper sort of proto gent style breakdown (laughs) and i'm sure it wasn't the first necessarily but it's like oh wow you feel like there's bound to be some metalcore band that has used that (laughs) right it's like a little nugget that you find upon repeated examination where you're like huh oh interesting well, and only with the benefit of listening f- from modern times. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, the thing that also strikes me about this song is that, again, we talked at the top of the discussion about the diversity on this album, you know, about how it's like an evolution of their sound. And you look at songs one, two, three, four. And they're all different. We're, we're all over the place, but in a way that is within 
it, it, to me, it's the theme that holds them all together, right? It's this, it's this continued theme that we see, you know, uh, of the whole refuse resist, you know, theme that goes through this entire album of, of, uh, fighting against oppression, fighting against censorship that, that really, um, holds everything together because musically very diverse so far, each song is different. Yeah. Well, this one's about David Koresh, uh, which I'm pretty sure is also, yeah, that's what Davidian uh, is also about. You know, the first track on um, uh, Machine Head's first album as well. It's uh, you know an yep. evergreen topic, but yeah, you're right. Like I said earlier, they're kind of they feel like different lanes of the same road. They're all you can tell they're all the same band. They're all they all fit together musically, but they are different. They're not you know, repetitive in that sense, which is good, I think. Yeah, and then of course it gets even less repetitive <laughs> with the next track, which is Kiowas. Right, which is the one that was filmed at uh, Chepstow Castle in Wales. That's right, yeah. Uh, when Sepultura hired Wallace to produce the record, he insisted the band record the album at Rockfield Studios, which we already talked about. Um, they passed the castle on the way to the studio. And, uh, oh, and it was Cavalera's idea. He decided he wanted to record the the song inside the building, and Andy made it happen. He got all the gear and cables there, and the place we did it in didn't have a ceiling. So when the song starts, when you listen with headphones real loud, you can hear all of these effing seagulls flying around, which you oh, totally you, you, can. Yeah, you don't even need headphones. To no, hear it's seagulls. pretty clear. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, new. lest anyone think that that was like, oh, I, they added that in to make it sound like, nope. That was actually part of the environment that they were recording in. Those are genuine Welsh seagulls, yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, the uh, the liner notes for this track on the album say, This song is inspired by a Brazilian Indian tribe called Kiowas, who live in the rainforest. They committed mass suicide as a protest against the government who was trying to take away their land and beliefs. That's pretty fucking hardcore. It is. I mean, and again, you just talked about Amen, right? Which... yeah similar themes in that, you know, again, massacres. Yeah. You know, it seems yeah. to sort of crop up again and again, uh, whether self inflicted or not. In well, and like fighting against whether, whether it is, uh, fighting against the government, fighting against authority, fighting against, uh, someone who you think is taking something away from you. Like that is a theme that comes up in so many of these songs as well. Yeah. Yeah. Refuse resist really is a kind of, you know, banner for the whole album, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. I, I'm sure this wasn't necessarily a factor for them, uh, but interestingly, Chepstow Castle is apparently the oldest uh, post-Roman stone fortification in Britain. Wow. 
I didn't know that, but uh, there you go. <laughs> I found that when I was looking it up. Um, the thing about this song, I love this song. I really love it. It's a, it's acoustic. It's really simple, but it is so powerful. And I remember a lot of people at the time being really unhappy about this song. That are, that are a supposedly thrash band like Sepultura, a bit like we were just saying about keyboards, you know, like Sepultura were doing an acoustic round the campfire style song. And, you know, those people are idiots. Because this song, <laughs> this song, and I th- I've always thought that because this song proves that you can be heavy as fuck with just acoustic instruments. The heaviness is in the delivery. It's in the songwriting. You don't need the electrification. It sounds great and we all love it, but you don't necessarily need it. You know, this is a really fucking heavy song, a great instrumental the, 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 whose power comes from that simplicity. Um, and incidentally, the percussion on this is from Paolo Jr. So you've got Igor doing the sort of regular drums on this, and then all the little, uh, you know, sort of percussive flourishes are Paolo because there's no bass on this one. Well, and I feel like the placement of it is also well done. Like, this is a song that you put, <clears throat> excuse me, somewhere near the middle of the album as uh, almost like a palate cleanser. You know what I mean? But But it is, as you said, it is still heavy in the delivery of the song, but I like... It, to me, it doesn't derail or uh, diminish the heaviness of the album at all. And, and in fact, it feels like it builds on what I was just saying with uh, you know song number four. Through the first five songs now, every song is completely different. And by the time you hit this song, you have to be thinking to yourself, like, I have no idea what we're going to get from the rest of this album. Like I really, who who knows what's coming next? Because every song so far has been completely different. Yeah, I mean, which is in a in a way is almost a little disappointing because what you get is I I think the five tracks that you get at the start of this album lay the template for the rest of it, and I like the back half of the album. This has got some great tracks on it, but there is nothing that's quite as surprising as those first few tracks. I don't think. Agreed. But I agree that it's a real statement because I always compare this to um, a Planet Caravan cover on Far Beyond Driven. Yep. Which Pantera stuck at the end of the album. And I mean, there's even a, a liner note in the album basically saying, hey, this is a great song by Black Sabbath that you've probably never heard before. Fuck off if you don't like it, which I, I appreciate and respect. But... They did stick it at the end of the album. It is kind of a like, well, you know, let's just put that over there because it doesn't yeah, sound... Yeah, you can skip this if you want. Right, because it doesn't sound like us. Whereas this, smack bang in the middle of the album. And yes, okay, you can skip songs on a CD and all that sort of... But nevertheless, smack bang in the middle going, no, 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 this is us. This is a part of how we sound and we are not going to apologize it or stick it at the end of the album right, so you can just... It end before it's on right it's not buried exactly this is us and you will listen to it uh and but still fuck you if you don't like it (laughs) (laughs) right right that goes without saying yeah um but yeah so for that reason i've always respected them putting a track like this in because they must have known you know they must have known that some of their fans, especially the the more trad thrash fans would go what the fuck is this and a lot of them right um so yeah, I, so I've always respected them for for doing that, and of course it then laid the grounds. This is the track that laid the grounds for most of the Roots album, really. But before then, we have the rest of this album. So let's move on to track six, which is Propaganda. Why don't you get a life and grow up? Why don't you realize that you've lost up? Why put these things where you don't understand? 
I mean, which could be so many different, uh, so many different things in today's world. It could be social media, the song. It could yep. be, um, you know, modern media, the song. It could be modern politics, the song. Like so, so many things that you could apply it to. But this song, I mean, the piercing note at the beginning, and then the riff just coming in and just crushing. It like, is a punishing riff, isn't it? Yeah. This might be my favorite song on the album. Just it, just in terms of that opening and that contrast, uh, it, there's a lot of elements of Pantera, especially, I think, in the chorus riff. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this is another solo that I feel is very sort of Hanneman, you know, in terms of its execution. But it feels right in this song because this song has kind of a manic, um, panicked feel to it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. It is, uh, I wouldn't say it's my favorite on the album. I think my favorite, to be honest, probably is Refuse Resist. Um, but it's definitely up there. This is a great track with, yeah, a really sort of hard, heavy uh, riff and that double kick combo as well. Um, uh, yeah, the solo, yeah, yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but I guess I could see that it would fit on a on a Slayer track and then you have another sort of gent like breakdown in there as well and that lovely dropout where all you hear i think it might be the first time on the album where you can finally hear paolo jr's bass properly um and you're right that the the chorus i could easily see pantera of doing a chorus like this um it's really good and like you say the lyrics still even what is it now 20 oh my god do i even want to think like 25 and a half years on fucking hell still incredibly relevant you know don't believe what you see don't believe what you read why criticize what you don't understand why change my words you're uh, just well and it yeah, fits the internet so well too you know? like you think you have the right to put me down propaganda hide your scum face to face you don't have a word yeah. to say i mean talk about like keyboard warriors and you know right. that kind and this of was stuff written like before the world wide web was 100%. even invented well, yeah. well maybe not invented but certainly before it was popular yeah just yeah Man, uh, human nature, it'll never change. I know. (laughs) (laughs) However, apparently technology will, because track seven is Biotech is Godzilla. Moly, written by the Dead Kennedys frontman Jello Biafra. Yeah, lyrics. Yeah, yeah. Uh, who wrote the lyrics to it? And I mean, as soon as you hear that, you're like, oh yeah, okay. This feels like uh, lyrically a punk song. Um, it's it, it, musically, it's kind of punky as well, really. Yeah, and just uh, you know, based on the 1992 Rio summit, where a bunch of politicians got together to talk about technology. And the theory 
that Jello had on this song was that AIDS was invented by scientists in laboratories. It was a disease that was uh, created by man and and then unleashed upon the people is sort of the the theory behind that. So biotech being the thing that comes to destroy us all. Yeah, which uh, actually, uh, I mean, that might sound crazy to a modern to modern ears, but at the time, that wasn't an out there conspiracy. That was something that a lot of people believe. It may not have believed, but certainly believed was possible. You know, it wasn't. It didn't sound kooky. It wasn't a tinfoil hat uh, theory. It was something that a lot of people were like. Wait a minute, this seems like an almost too perfect way of killing people. Um, you know, are we sure that this wasn't invented in a lab somewhere? And obviously the truth is we'll never know. Um, but yeah, it wasn't actually as crazy as it sounds. The song, however, is crazy uh, in a, in the best way possible. I love this song. It, again, not a favorite on the album necessarily, but I do love it. Again, just because who the fuck puts a song called Biotech is Godzilla? Well, and then the Godzilla like, but then you have lyrics like cutthroat corporations don't give a damn when lots of people died from what they made. I mean, you could, you right, could basically yeah. change the title to big pharma is Godzilla today and talk about the opioid crisis and have it be almost exactly the same as this, you know, is, uh, from 1993. Yeah. So, uh, it's another one that's universal and has totally remained dude. relevant throughout the years. Yeah. But I just, again, I, I know a lot of people looked at this and went, what what the fuck bio what does this mean yeah <laughs> uh but i love it i love the chorus Fan- great like stomping biotech fantastic um yeah just really really like heavy thrashy and powerful uh yep. you know an odd song but a really good one yep totally agree uh and on a very very different tip moving on to track 8 is uh nomad Yeah, this one th- this one is not my favorite song in the album, but it feels like one of the most complete songs on the album. Like everything to yeah, me yeah, just fits together in this song and um you know, the pounding riff, the drums, the groove, um you know, the and then just the theme of like, you know, uh cultures losing their identity, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I um, I love the 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 rhythmic chug uh on the main verse of this track um it's yeah just i mean I, again sort of proto gent really but that whole yeah just fantastic that's that gets me all every time that sort of stuff the chorus well, the air well. horn like opening right the, yeah, which it sounds is like a siren. kind of like yeah 
It is. It's almost like signaling like the it, with the theme of like losing your cultural identity and stuff like that. It's almost like the the last sort of warning evacuate. Horn. Yeah. Yes, uh you know, it's like um so yeah, it again to me like I said it feels very uh thematically and musically complete. Like everything is everything works well together on this song. Yeah, the chorus is so simple but so powerful, you know, shouting nomad and then that lovely guitar line just Again, yeah, it's, you know, not, I wouldn't put it as the best track on the album, but it is one that I really like and have always liked. And it's catchy. It's one of the ones that has always stuck in my mind. Like there have been times if I don't listen to this album for a while and you ask me, you know, what's the riff from Amen? I'd be like, I don't quite remember. Um, yep. But, but I always remember Nomad because of that simple, powerful chorus just really sticks in my mind. Uh, and speaking of simple and powerful <laughs> track nine, <laughs> we who are not as others. I mean, very complicated lyrically. Let's see if we can get through. <laughs> what I the... love, what I love, is that the lyrics for this, right in the in the tr- the album, it's repeated basically the same line repeated seven times, and it is written seven times. Oh, absolutely! Yep. Like there's <laughs> there's no you could just write just it in one, case no, <laughs> they've written it seven times. Yeah, just in, in case the, you didn't know, <laughs> in um, the booklet. I, I really mean, like this track. I mean, maybe they great. needed to fill out the liner notes in the sense that they had some room. <laughs> And they didn't want to, <laughs> yeah. And know. call me crazy, but I this is one of my favorite tracks on the album. I love it. So many things about this track that appeal to me. You've got the the lead guitars are some of the most melodic on the album, actually, but also kind of you know very atmospheric, kind of gothic. You've got the addition of acoustic guitars in the background for a bit of uh, layering and depth. The whole song is crazy atmospheric. You've got Igor going nuts yep. on the drums, absolutely crazy, and you know, as repetitive and simple as those lyrics are, they're great lyrics because Agreed. Uh, doesn't it kind of sum everything up? Yes. And, and not only that, but you, you know, again, the diversity of the songs on this album, this is another song, not like any of the other songs, right? It starts off yeah. sludgy, then it gets kind of proggy. You've got these sort of dreamy notes going on in the background, as you said, super atmospheric. And then at some point it becomes just a wall of sound, you know? And so it, it really, uh, even within it, this one song, there's that diversity that you kind of experience throughout the album captured it, it, almost in a microcosm in this particular song. It really good. The whole song goes on a journey, doesn't it? Yeah. 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 I don't recall if I ever saw them play this live. 
Um, if they did, I'm sure I would have been shouting along with Max, but I don't actually recall if they've ever played this live. I hope they have. <laughs> I hope they did, just because, again, this is another one that I remember a few people calling out, going like, that's a bit of a weird song, that one. And I'm like, yeah, but that's why it's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, and especially by that by track nine on the album, like if you haven't come to expect the unexpected on right. this album by now, then you're, you haven't really been paying attention. Right. You haven't been listening properly. Absolutely. Um, so moving on to track 10, then manifest. which is about the Karandiru Massacre, which took place in 1992 in the Karandiru Penitentiary in Sao Paulo, Brazil, where the military police stormed the penitentiary following a riot. The massacre left 111 prisoners dead, and it's considered a major human rights violation in the history of Brazil. Yeah, yeah. All, all of which is basically recounted in I mean, well, the lyrics. They're, they're not even really sung. It's just Max sort of reading a news report almost. Absolutely, which goes to what we were talking about earlier as like a lot of the songs in this album to this point have been very brief in their lyrics. They've been very short. They've been, I mean, we just came from a song where it is the same line repeated seven times. And then here you get a story. He's, he's, he's sort of documenting for history in a song this horrible act that happened and encapsulating all of it. So if you listen to the song, you know the story. Well, and uh, an act which, outside of Brazil, probably never made the headlines. You know, I'd never heard of this, certainly. Uh, and this would have been, I mean, looking at the date, basically, this happened a year before this album came out. Uh, and this song is certainly the first that I'd ever heard of it. And I don't recall it ever really being spoken about much in Western media since, either. Or in English-speaking media, I should say. Um, and this is like actual lyrics from the song. Over 80% of the inmates were not sentenced yet. The bodies were filled with bullets and bites from police dogs. The police try to hide the massacre, saying they were on, there were only eight deaths. The violence of Brazilian cops is very well known outside of Brazil. The, this kind of extermination is a method that they use to get rid of the overpopulation in the jails. That is lyrical content from this song. Yeah, yeah. Like we said, a really political album. <laughs> I mean, there's um, no there. You couldn't be more specific about what happened, and also what he what that means to him, right? You know, and, in and, this song, and what, why he wants other people to but totally do to know about it and hear about it. Yeah, um, I mean, musically, it's not the best track on the album. There's not a lot to sort of hang your hat on, Agreed. as it were. So I must admit, this isn't a track that I think of often. I mean, it doesn't really have a chorus. 
um, you know. But it feels chaotic, right? Which if you're thinking about like a riot and then the police bursting in and just absolute carnage like that, that thematically plays into the music for sure. It does. Absolutely. And what I was going to say was that I musically, it's not that memorable. And I sort of, I don't think about it musically much, but the subject matter, yeah, yeah, has always stuck in my mind because it is so stark. And again, you know, not really something that uh you were ex- expecting to hear on you know on a new heavy metal record um yeah kind of you know re- remarkably powerful uh considering how chaotic it is yep track 11 is a the first cover version on the album the hunt I think they did a great cover of. Um, I love the main riff to the song, which is very faithful to the new Model Army, you know, uh, version. Original, but they yeah. they certainly added a lot of crunch and a lot of heft to this song. But I feel like it fits really well. Um, you know, this whole idea of like uh, vigilantism and street justice, you know, kind of playing out. Um, I feel like it's a really well-chosen cover for this album. And even though it is toward the back of the album, I don't feel like it's a take it or leave it sort of thing. I feel like it's a really solid choice and fits within this album. I agree. I agree. It feels like it belongs to the album. Um, Yeah. Really, really great track. Uh, Great cover version. It's close enough to be recognizable. You know, if you know the the NMA version, then obviously you will recognize it. But it really puts their own stamp on it. Uh, and that Max, with his vocals, really makes it his own, I think. Because his vocals are very different to uh, Slade the Levelers on the original. And yes. But, you know, he really does a, a great job of sort of getting over that aggression. Um, it's much better because they've done several have done quite a few covers. And I, I think this is one of their best. It's certainly better. They did. Uh, they covered Orgasmatron on the previous album um and it's fine but it it doesn't really do anything to make it their own whereas this track well and in fact if you actually (laughs) uh if you go and look at the youtube or one of the anyway uh youtube um uh pages of the original of the new model army version you will find people underneath who were like, I had no idea this was a cover. I've been listening to the Sepultura version for 20 years. Yep. <laughs> that doesn't like, surprise me. Yeah. But I mean, that speaks to how well they made it sound like one of their own songs. Uh, I think it's, yeah, it's absolutely not a throwaway. It's one of my favorite songs on the album. I, 
and this may be controversial to some listeners, I don't know, personally, if I had been, you know, putting this album together, this would actually have been the last track. I would have ended the album here. I agree with you. Ah, time for you to agree 100%. (laughs) I agree. In fact, let me say that really clearly. I agree 100% with you, Anthony. There you go. There's there's the other ringtone. (laughs) Yeah. But let's move on then to the next track, Clinched Fist. I mean, it's not a bad song, but doesn't feel like the strongest closing song for me. Um, To me, it's a little bit too long, uh, and it doesn't live up to what we've had up to this point. And so it does feel to me a little bit of a letdown from had we just closed with The Hunt. Yeah, I agree completely. I mean, it's got that nice industrial opening. Yep. uh, Which, as we mentioned, there are a couple of sort of industrial influences on this album, and... After this album, I think it was after this album was released, Max went on to do the Nail Bomb project with um, Alex Newport from Fudge Tunnel, uh, and you can you know you can see elements of that in here, and that that's quite nice. But this track to me always sounded like a B side. Yeah, it's, no, I totally you know, agree with you. It, it's not bad, like you say, it's not a bad track, but it feels like it's built from pieces of better songs that you can find throughout the album, um, apart from. The don't get me wrong section. That's the one part of this song which I really love. That really fast, don't get me wrong bit. I right. love that. But the rest of it, yeah, yeah, it's okay, but it's well, it's a it is a weird one to close the album with, I think. And lyrically, I mean, pain makes me stronger every day. Life is chaos, you gotta deal with it, expressing my aggression through confusion, face reality. I mean, you know, music and creative outlets as a way to deal with the the screwed up state of the world and that kind of stuff. Like that's what I kind of took away from this is like it, it, a way to channel that a way to keep fighting a way to keep, um, you know, uh, speaking up, which is what they're doing with their music on this album. uh, Clearly with every single song that we've listened to so far. So it fits thematically with everything else. It just doesn't feel as strong musically. And when you already have 11 songs, right. um, That's the thing. It's, it's not like they needed to put, they didn't need it, dude filler on the album yeah i agree lyrically it's a really good track you know i just think it's uh underserved by the music um and again you know if this was track eight or something maybe i'd look upon it more kindly i don't know um or or maybe not but yeah as the last track on the traditional release of the album anyway uh i think it's yeah just a, a weird choice however there is one more track or there was on the bonus editions anyway which is the one that i had because i bought the uh the digipack and that is the cover of Policia. Three, two, three, 
did you hear this one? I did not hear this one. It must not have been on the version that I listened to. It is a cover by uh, this Brazilian rock band called Cheetahs. Yeah. Uh, and the song is basically, they're, they're, I say rock band, but they started out as a bit of a punk band. Uh-huh. Um, and Max apparently absolutely adores them, which is no surprise. Uh, and the song is basically just about how the police are scum and they're violent and they will beat you up and they don't give a shit about the ordinary person and all that. It's a really short, fast punk uh song where max is singing at a million miles an hour it's kind of crazy it's nice actually i mean it's it's a nice little bonus track because it is so short and crazy um and really like you know much more straight ahead punk than anything else on the album even more than the new model army cover yeah um but yeah it's 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 good i like it so overall like i say this is my favorite sepulture album i think it is the most complete and coherent album that they've done. I would cut a track or two, if I'm honest, um, you know, give them my druthers. But overall, yeah, my favorite album, and I think they're best. Uh, I, I don't think they have, I don't think anything they did before had this level of confidence and cohesion and accomplishment and experimentation. And I don't think anything they did after had as good songwriting. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I think this is an excellent album. I think for me, Arise would probably still be my go-to, and probably just because I, I have that sentimental attachment to it, you know, that that sure. uh, I think elevates it as well. But what I love about this album is what we've been talking about is the diversity and how someone who listened to Arise can still really love this album, um, but that it offers something completely different in a lot of ways than like Arise did. So I, I feel like they're still in that place where they're, they still feel a lot like Sepultura, although they're stretching and growing and, and trying new things here. And just the, I think it's admirable, the diversity that they were able to put into this album. I mean, they clearly wanted to evolve a bit with this album and, these songs go in so many different directions, but the strength of the theme that kind of runs through all of them is really, uh, it just really pulls it all together. Yeah, I, I agree completely. Yeah. It's, um, like I said, uh, coherent is one of the adjectives that I've always used, uh, to describe this album. It's, um, yeah, it's just an absolute classic and it had such an influence. I know I've, I said that at the start of the show, but it really did. It's like, if, you know, if we have any listeners out there who sort of weren't, in the metal scene uh, for one reason or another when this album was released. You know, if you listen to this now, you can hear so many bands that came afterwards in this album, just in the same way that you can with 80s bands with Maiden, uh, you know, or thrash bands after Metallica and so on and so on. It had such an incredible impact and influence at the time, which I think, as I say, I think you might not realise because of the slightly weak production and because it did influence so much. It's a bit like, I think we've said this before. It's a bit like going back and watching Blade Runner or The Matrix now, and you're like, "Yeah, big deal." And you're like, "No, but you don't understand. Nobody else was doing this." Right. It's, it's hard. <laughs> Sometimes it's hard to remember that, and yeah. um, and I think fitting with the approach that we've taken on this show, like you want to pick an album by a band that's going to be fun to discuss, and I think this is that album for Sepultura. Yeah. You know, right. like in terms of really being able to kind of sink your teeth into, and there's a lot to explore here, and um. I, I definitely, you know, I, for when you first chose this album, I was like, oh, I kind of wish you would have chosen Arise, but no, I, I am 
actually super happy that you chose this one. I, yeah, I agree. I mean, regardless of whether or not I prefer this to Arise, I, I agree that this is definitely a much more interesting album to discuss yep, than agreed. Arise. You know, Arise, like I say, it's a fine album. I have nothing against it. Um, but it is a straight thrash album, you know, and how much can you really talk about that? Yeah. Um, but whereas this album, yeah, there's so much to sort of, as you say, to dig into. So that was Sepultura Chaos AD. Uh, so before we get to the homework, let me just remind everyone again that, uh, you can support us by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thrash it out. If you want to spread the word, tell your friends, uh, then do that. Point them to our Apple Podcasts or Google Play Podcasts pages. Uh, please do give us a review or a rating on those if you can. And if you want to get in touch, of course, you can go to thrashitoutpodcast.com where you will find links to our email and also to mine and Brian's Twitter account. And you can join the Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash thrashitout. So, Brian, lay it on us. What are we going to talk about next time? I think it's time to get rocking with Dokken. <laughs> You've been threatening this for the last, well, pretty much since we started the show. <laughs> yes, and inspired by the album that I picked up on Record Store Day on vinyl this week, we are going to go back to November of 1985, and we are going to be talking about Dokken's Under Lock and Key which is their third studio album, uh, again from 1985, reached number 32 on the Billboard 200. Uh, and Dokken is a band which I feel like is criminally underrated for the time that they existed in. Uh, George Lynch, one of my favorite guitar players of all time, and I just feel like the band and he have never gotten the credit that they deserve uh, for that particular, for their contributions to the scene at the time and how good they were. Um, so yeah, we are going to get rocking with Dokken on the next episode. I know that will make at least one person extremely happy, maybe two or three. <laughs> uh, a lot of people are probably rolling their eyes and falling out of their chairs right now, but much like the twisted sister episode that we did, um, I hope that folks will really give it a chance and, uh, we'll have a lot to discuss. Uh, well, I, I hope it will be like the Twisted Sister episode in more ways than one, because uh, once again, I am, uh, this is becoming a bit of a theme of its own, this uh, season of the show, this volume of the show. Uh, I'm not sure I've ever heard a Duckin song. Really? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, it's possible I might, but I couldn't tell, I couldn't name one off the top of my head. Um, yeah. Uh, they're not a band that I've ever actively searched out to listen to. So yeah, that could be interesting. I mean, I feel like it could go, could go either way with you on this one. <laughs> I will not be surprised if you come back and you're like, this did not resonate with me at all. Uh, and I won't be surprised if you come back and you're like, oh, is it a lot better than I thought it was going to be? So we shall see. But uh, yeah, it's about time to get rocking with Dokken. We will find out indeed. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. Keep thrashing and we'll see you next time. Take care. Shit!